Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram and a Movie Podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We're going to be talking about Enneagram Type 4 today. We're going to talk about a couple of movies that, uh, I don't know, something about watching them, T.J. Daw, since you picked these movies, uh, uh, made me want to drink lighter fluid. And uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, may, maybe you can explain why it's the case. So, so we're going to be talking about two movies, and I'm going to turn it over to you, T.J., to uh, say why these movies. But the two movies are With Nell and I and Pitch Perfect. Two movies that couldn't be further from what we talked about in our last episode uh, when we talked about the Type 8, uh, but two movies that really do reflect Enneagram Type 4. So, TJ, tell tell our listeners why you picked these movies. I think these two movies provide a really strong contrasting portrait of Type 4. Withnail and I, the character of Withnail, I see as an extremely unhealthy 4, and his arc is to go from unhealthy to even more unhealthy. And Pitch Perfect is the story of uh, eh, kind of average for who has an, a, a, a character arc of growth in a way that's really positive and healthful. So I thought these two contrast each other quite well. I'm also delighted by something that's just naturally happening this season, not with every episode, but in some of our episodes, to do two movies that would never, ever be paired together at a rep cinema. <laughs> and yet nobody sees the link but us, which makes me feel really smart and special. <laughs> that is true because these movies are as different as you could get. Um, but and I agree with you; they do reflect the type four from very different perspectives, also different subtypes. So, uh, which which I'm uh, looking forward to discussing as we go forward. TJ uh, TJ and Gracia, uh, had you seen these movies before, and uh, what was your reaction to them? I had not seen either of them. I would say Pitch Perfect, I connected with a little bit more for reasons we'll get into. And with Nail and I, I think I'm still processing. <laughs> it feels like one of those movies where it's trying to tell me something. I don't know what it's trying to tell me, but I'm pretty sure there's something there I'm supposed to be pondering and unpacking. So I'm still uh, going through that process, I guess. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting point. Uh, is there a message to this movie? And if so, what is it? Right. I mean, I think you could dig out a message to pitch perfect. But uh, with this movie, it is a little bit different. And um, I will say, I, so first of all, I had never seen either of these movies before. And uh, upon watching them, I almost didn't make it through. Uh, the first 10 minutes of with Dale and I, I was really, really close to just turning this off and calling TJ and saying, no, I give up, you know, I just, <laughs> but I'm glad I stuck with it. And I will say that the second time I watched it, I actually had some sympathy for the characters uh, by the end of the movie. So, um, anyway, I would have not... thought that the jazz music at the beginning of with Nail and I might've grabbed you. Well, you know, that is one of the things that held me in there, right? So it's uh, it's actually a King Curtis version of Whiter Shade of Pale, the old Procol Harum song. And it made me think of uh, the New York Stories segment. Uh, if you remember the, the anthology film, New York Stories, from a couple of years after With Nail and I, it was uh, a segment by 
Martin Scorsese, one by Francis Ford Coppola and another by Woody Allen. And the Martin Scorsese section was uh, starring Nick Nolte about an artist who was, uh, you know, trying to hold on to a relationship with a young woman played by Patricia Arquette. And that same song, A Whiter Shade of Pale, was played throughout. He kept popping it into his uh, boombox, which was how we played cassettes back in that period. And it actually made me wonder if that was a conscious choice or a reference from Scorsese. Uh, back to Withnail and I, because uh, New York Stories was made two years later, and uh, same song. But you're right. I, one of the reasons I hung out was because uh, I was thinking, hey, this is an interesting version of this song that I hadn't heard before. Okay. All right. So I'll tell you what. Let's uh, before we uh, wander too much into the myths, let's talk about the Type Four. So I'm going to give a quick overview of the Type Four, but I don't want to hog the airspace on this topic, being that we have a real live four on the podcast in uh, Mr. T.J. Daw here. So um, I'll just give a quick thing, and then I'll ask you to expand, T.J. Uh, So um, I refer to the Enneagram Type Four as uh, a character who is striving to feel unique, right? Finding ways to express how they are different, how they are not like other people, uh, trying to find what is authentic to them and how they can express that out into the world. And again, they can do this in very adaptive or healthy ways that lead to great creativity, uh, great inspiration, a great aesthetic sense. You, You know, there's a lot to the upside of this strategy. And the downside of it can be kind of a self-absorbed wallowing in being misunderstood. And, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of that in Withnail and I, right, that we'll talk about. Uh, The connecting points here are points one and points two on the Enneagram. And the way I think of this is the relationship is basically this resistance to striving to feel perfect can cause trouble for uh, the one. And what I mean by that is this uh, unwillingness to follow the rules, right? This resistance to conformity in some way. Uh, I don't want to color inside the lines. I want to move outside of the lines. I want to express myself. But you better follow the rules, right? Don't hold me to the rules, but I expect you to meet my expectations. Steve Jobs was a good example of this, right? I mean, he was very Uh, vivid in his vision of things, very exacting and demanding in his vision of the way things should be, and expected others to embrace that vision. But there's no way he would have rules put on himself, right? So I think that's a classic sort of forest issue. There's also this relationship to point two, which is striving to feel connected, which is all about relationships, right? So one of the ways that fours will uh, reinforce their uniqueness is through who they are connected to, who, who they are romantically linked to, who their friends are, who their group is, etc. And if you are somebody special, then that makes me special as well. So they tend to sp- seek out specialness in their relationships. So the core qualities related to Enneagram Type 4 are um, individuality, right? So each of us is born inherently individual, right? We have our own DNA, our own fingerprints, our own irises, etc. But we all start to lose the sense of being unique, distinct individuals and have to go through this process of disidentification or what Jung, Jung would refer to as, uh, um, as uh, individuation. 
right, as we grow. So uh, one of the things driving the four is this loss of the sense of being a true individual. And so therefore, they feel like they have to ma- manufacture uniqueness right, as a way to make up for that feeling. Uh, the connecting points are objectivity. right? The core quality of point one is objectivity, seeing the world as it is without, you know, uh, independent of the link of emotion. That can be a challenge for fours. And compassion at point two. And compassion can be stunted in fours where they can, you know, when they're unhealthy, they can fall into not being compassionate or sensitive to other people. Again, this is really something we see in Withnil and I, right? Uh, You know, this lack of almost this narcissistic inability to recognize the humanness in people, it seems. Okay. Uh, finally, we have the vice virtue and fixation. The vice of the four is envy. I want what you have. I wish I was, I wish I was as okay as you are, even though I would never admit it. The virtue is equanimity, learning to find balance in our lives, learning to, you know, be more even keeled in the expression of our emotions. And the fixation is melancholy, this sort of persistent sadness that we tend to see in a lot of fours. I think the movie uh, that we, you know, we talked about this in season one on this podcast, but the movie Lost in Translation really captures that melancholy of the four uh, very, very well. So that's the four. Um, and uh, again, TJ, I'll, th- I'll throw it to you if you have anything to offer there before we get into the movies. Yeah, one thing to say about envy is there's an aspect of envy, which is, as you described, I want what you have. So somebody might have a better career than me or a better uh, body than me or a better relationship or something like that. So I might really wish that I had that thing or those things and then use that as a lash for myself to denigrate what I do have and not recognize it. There's a kind of a parallel layer to envy, which is this sense that everyone else just seemed to get something that I didn't, that I missed this really crucial day at school when the important information was given out about how to belong. So everybody else just seems to have this effortless ability to find their place, to be connected to other people, to have happiness and and value. And that refracts in kind of contrasting ways within a forest heart, because on the one hand, there's envy of that, of like, if only I could have that. I wish I had that. I really wish that I belonged. And the desire to belong is almost a dirty secret for fours because the other side of that envy is a real resentment of people. A sense that you may all belong, but you know what? You're superficial. You have no depth. You have no taste. I don't want to be part of that world at all. If you invited me, I would turn you down and I would be proud of myself for doing so. So there's these two kind of urges that pull in opposite directions at the same time. Kind of a superiority and an inferiority complex. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Very interesting point. And sometimes that superiority complex can seem very defensive, right? Uh, And other times it it doesn't seem so defensive. It seems genuine, right? Of, you know, coming from an earned place. Um, TJ Gracia, any uh, observations, general observations about type four uh, before we move on. Well, I'm married to a four. And so I think so ah, my, uh, my view of the four is often colored by, you know, as, as I'm whatever watching these movies or reading things about the four, I'm always conscious of trying to separate. Well, this doesn't quite connect with wh- what I view of as the four. It's like, Oh, well that's just actually not my wife. And so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, all those, I agree with all the things you've said and, um, I, I can appreciate and We'll, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this, especially more with pitch perfect, but, 
I can appreciate um, the connection between one and four and the, the, uh, the positive and the negative elements that go on between those two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you make a really good point here um, and something we have to be careful about when talking about the Enneagram. We, it's very easy, particularly for people who write about the Enneagram or teach about the Enneagram, to fall into describing the fours they know right, or the fives they know or whatever it is, right? So there's this sample bias that we often see in some of the literature. And, you know, some of that sample bias tends to get passed down. Um, you, you know, we, we see traits that are specific to an individual who also just happens to be a four and assume that all fours do that when it's not the case. Okay. Yep. And I, w- I will say before, years before I knew about the Enneagram, I would tell people, Casey's special. No, I know. Yeah, I'm sure you think whatever, your girlfriend's special or whatever, everyone's special. Um, uh, it kind of reminds me of that line. I just reread um, George Orwell's Animal Farm. I reread it every couple of years. And the the final rule that gets written on the end of the barn, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. Yes, well, yeah. all people are special, but some people are more <laughs> special than others. And, that's right. That's right. Something that also happens when I do uh, trainings in organizations, I'll get somebody who will say, you know, I can see why this person's this type or that person's that type, you know, et cetera. But, but I don't really feel like I fit. You know, I feel like I don't, you know, none of these things describe me. I don't feel like my personality, you know, is as clear as other people. And I, you know, I say, yeah, well, we've got a category for you, right? <laughs> you know, there's, you know, we got a box for you too, uh, you know, to, to be put in. And it's at the point four. So, all right, good. So let's get, let's go to our first movie, uh, With Nail and I. Um, uh, TJ Daw, you're going to tell us about With Nail and I, correct? Yeah, With Nail and I is a British film released in North America, at least in 1987. I believe in the UK it was 1986. It became a cult hit and remains so. It was written and directed by Bruce Robinson. This was his first film. He was an actor before this. And it has certain autobiographical elements. So it's about two 20-something actors in London in 1969. The main character, who's the narrator, is his name is never used in the movie, and in the credits he's simply referred to as I. But if you read the script, the name that's given is Marwood. So he narrates, he's 25 years old, and he's friends and roommates with Whitnail, who's 29, played by Richard E. Grant in his screen debut. So they live in both squalor and debauchery, drinking a lot, taking a lot of drugs, waiting for their respective big breaks as actors. And at a point of exhaustion, they get the idea to go off for a weekend in the country. And they borrow the key to Whitnail's Uncle Monty's cottage in Northern England. And they drive up there where they don't exactly get the rest and recuperation that they were hoping for. They return when I gets a callback for an audition he made. And then he comes back and discovers that he's been cast in the lead in a repertory production in Manchester. And he cuts his hair and he leaves Whitnail behind, standing in the rain. 13 million Londoners have to wake up to this and murder, and all brain, and rape. And I'm sitting in this bloody shack, and I can't cope with Withnall. I must be out of my mind. I must go home at once and discuss his problems in depth. I think we've been in here too long. I feel unusual. I think we should go outside. We've got soup. Why not get any soup? Why don't you use a cup like any other human being? Why don't you wash up occasionally like any other human being? We are indeed drifting into the arena of the unwell, making an enemy of our own future. 
This is a device enabling the drunken driver to operate in absolute safety. My boys, we're at the end of an age, and here we are, we three. Perhaps the last island of beauty in the world. I'm starving. How can we make it die? I'll tell you what I found to be interesting about the way this movie ended, because they could have been quite despairing, but the music sort of had an uplifting tone to it, right? So I, for example, and I noticed this more the second time watching it, I wasn't left in a state of despair. I felt almost as if there's hope for Withnail, even though he seems a completely uh, irredeemable character, um, to, you know, to some extent. Well, and his quotation of the Shakespeare soliloquy, what a piece of work is man from Hamlet. He delivers it incredibly well. Yes. He really is a wonderful actor. Now he's doing this standing in front of some caged wolves at the zoo in a park in London. And there's nobody to hear him but these wolves in the rain. And he just pours all of his passion into the into these 12 lines or however long it is. He delivers it magnificently and then just kind of stands there with nothing left but his solitude and hopelessness and walks off into the rain and the camera keeps on him as he keeps walking into the distance. We see him walk into that rain for a long time. Yeah. And yeah. I just thought that was just so beautiful and artful and very forish. And like, even in this moment with somebody seemingly at their lowest, there's such beauty in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, it was. There's a couple of uh, interesting things I saw in the research. Uh, number one, and I noticed this obviously watching the credits, but one of the producers of this movie was George Harrison of the Beatles. And um, they use uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps from the Beatles uh, as part of it. I think Ringo Starr was credited as Richard Starkey. He had some part uh, in the financing or producing as well. I don't recall exactly. I've read a book of interviews with the writer-director Bruce Robinson. His description of what happened was, I've also read Richard E. Grant's autobiography, which is called With Nails. Yeah. So I can't remember which one of them said it, but um, R- Ringo Starr came in as they were filming into the set of the apartment and simply validated that, yep, this is exactly what this world looked like at that time. <laughs> I don't know if his involvement was anything beyond that, but just coming ah, in okay. and giving it a stamp of approval of like, whoever did this did their job right. Yeah. This is the way down and out artists lived in London in the late sixties. Yeah, and it w- it was a very low budget movie. I think it was one point one million pounds, which back then probably would have been about two million dollars, maybe. Uh, not that successful, but it did go on to be a cult uh, classic based on a um, never published novel by Bruce Robinson, as I recall, and um, you know some pretty big music in it right i mean uh today the credits for those hendrix songs and while my guitar gently weeps and uh whiter shade of pale would probably be close to what they paid for the whole budget of the movie uh at this point so i thought that was used very effectively through it um so um tell us a couple of scenes that for you really demonstrated the point for yeah, so Withnail, I think, is a pretty classic unhealthy four. And one of the elements that fours can get into when they're not so healthy is a blatant disdain for people, just for the masses in general. So as Withnail and I are driving north, you know, as they're still in London, he's looking out the window and he sees a sign saying accident black spot, you know, advising people to use caution. 
And then he just yells accident, black spot. These aren't accidents. They're throwing themselves into the road to escape all this hideousness. And then he sees somebody standing on the side of the road and yells out the window at at them, throw yourself into the road, darling. You haven't got a chance. (laughs) So there's this real black nihilism that Forrest can really dig into. And he says all of these things with panache as well. He does everything he does with panache. Yes. Even as poor as he is, he dresses with a tie. You know, he... He's a good looking guy and he, he's verbally creative and he's funny even when he's dark and cynical and narcissistic and nihilistic. That just comes across in moment after moment. Yeah. I, I, I do want to point out, I think, and you know, maybe you guys have a different view, but he struck me as a classic transmitting four. Right. Oh, yeah. It was all about, you know, and the transmitting four is the most dynamic, the most aggressive, the most assertive, the most flamboyant, um, and can also be sort of the most self absorbed. And self absorption was a real theme with, with, with now. But go ahead, continue. Don't I know it as a transmitting four? Yeah. <laughs> He's just like you, TJ. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> but trying to say it nicely. No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason I like this movie so much. Uh, there's a later scene when they're in the country and uh, they're walking home from the pub where Jake the Poacher has just told them off and threatened them with an eel that he keeps in his pocket. And uh, <laughs> Whitmill's in a particular state. He's also quite drunk. And then he just bellows with his theater-trained voice out into the wilderness, and it echoes beautifully. I don't know if this was the way it sounded on set or if it was through ADR, but he just yells out, just you wait. When I strike, they won't know what hit them. Bastards, you'll all suffer. I'll show the lot of you. I'm going to be a star. Yes. So there's this huge self-aggrandizement that fours can really fall prey to, particularly transmitting fours. This sense that I am anointed by the gods. I have something nobody else has. And my place in this universe is to beam my uniqueness and my greatness into the world. And it will happen. Forrest can spend a lot of time in fantasies. And those fantasies are often fantasies of, of personal grandeur, where my greatness is recognized by the elite, by people who actually have taste. And all of the people who ignored me before, in this case, in the case of an actor, all the casting directors who didn't cast me before or all anybody who didn't love me anybody who rejected my love even if i didn't let them know that i was in love with them they'll all be sorry my family that didn't understand me all of those people they'll be shamed from having let greatness slip away from their fingers tj and gracia what about this movie seemed forest to you one thing that stood out to me is I'm not exactly sure the best way to describe it something like unrequited longing uh, there's, you know, both of them, they're, they're longing to become famous actors or, you know, waiting for this big part. They're longing to get away in the country, but that doesn't pan out very well for them. Uh, and then sort of the subplot of Uncle Monty's longing for Marwood or I or whatever, whatever we want to call him. And that seems like a very four-ish thing. This, you know, always longing for something that you can never quite get your hands on. Yeah, yeah. Uncle Monty seemed like a cartoon of a four to me in terms of just how incredibly dramatic he is. And without them saying it blatantly, he seems to be from the British aristocracy, which is one of those little pockets of culture where eccentricity is encouraged and cultivated. And his financial needs just seem to be met. There's no indication that he's got a job of any kind. And yet he lives in a pretty nice place and has this place in the country. But he'll go into 
you know, rapturous quotations of Shakespeare and not even notice that the two people visiting him aren't listening and are talking to each other. Or he'll talk about how much he loves root vegetables, or he'll go into fits of irritation with his cat. And he uses, <laughs> you know, flamboyant language all of the time. So there's there's all of these things to him where it's like, I, I've never met a four that actually acts like that. That seems more like right. somebody's cartoonish description of a four, but also hilarious and very entertaining yes. to watch. And I've also yes. never interacted with aristocracy. <laughs> Present company excluded. <laughs> there you go. But you're still a young man, TJ, so there's time. Uh, <laughs> yes, and um, my favorite Uncle Monty line kind of fits with this longing that you're talking about, TJ. I shall never play the Dane. Right, uh, you know, just this longing <laughs> for not having played Hamlet, and, and and you're right, he was clearly a person of means. And I mean, he was driving a Rolls Royce, right? The the, the car he drove up to the to the uh, country in was a, a pretty high end car. So um, yeah, so longing and anything else jump out at you, TJ? Well, one thing I thought was interesting, and I don't know that this how much it relates directly to the four, but as I was watching this film. I was feeling reminded of, and I've and I've never actually seen this other film, but there's a film called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead, yeah. yes, with uh, Tim Roth and um, Gary Oldman, Gary, and Gary Oldman and Richard Dreyfuss, and and what was interesting is that I was thinking about that, and then at the end, Withnail does his this you know segment from Hamlet which Hamlet delivers to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And so I thought, oh, well, maybe the maybe they're familiar, they're trying to make some mm. connection, or there's something going on. But then I looked into it, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead didn't come out until three years after With Nail and I. Yeah, the play came out in 1967, and it was a huge hit. And it was a hit in the West End. So the, the characters and the writer-director would definitely have been aware of it. And it's both a play and a movie that won't mean anything to somebody if they don't know Hamlet and if, don't, if right. they don't know Hamlet well. And the timing of when that movie came out and when I saw With Nail and I, both are within the years that I was in college studying theater. So I was surrounded by theater people and it was one of my classmates who was astonished that I'd never seen With Nail and I and insisted that I watch it and rented it and we watched it together. And then other theater friends and I watched it together multiple times. And we grew to have like in-jokes that were quotations from this movie. And we also loved Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. So for theater people, there's, a, there's, there's several extra layers with both of those movies in terms of like, there's just no way you're a theater student, you don't know Hamlet much less draw delight from Hamlet being retold from the point of view of these two minor characters. And the movie itself is excellent. It was both written and directed by Tom Stoppard, the playwright. And it stands as a movie. It doesn't just seem like somebody put a camera while they were making the play. Yeah. Yeah. It, it could have been a gimmick sort of movie, but it wasn't. I, I, I think that uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, it was an excellent movie, although I haven't seen it in many, many years, but I uh, highly recommend that. And I agree, there, there does seem to be this sort of psychic connection between these two movies, if not a purposeful, deliberate connection. A couple of things for me, um, uh, questions, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective the character marwood or i you know as you said tj his his name is not used in the in the film and it's not in the credits either the opening scene i started to see him as just another four an expression of four but over time i came to see him as a six any thoughts from you guys on his enneagram type yeah i agree 
he's got a sixth thing and that he's kind of the the playful friend who's really happy to be on the ride with this with this transmitting four. Uh, he's also quite fearful a lot of the time. You know, he has panic attacks now and then. He's much more aware of clear and present danger and he's reactive like a six in a number of ways. At the same time, he does have a habit of processing his ideas into prose. And a lot of that comes into the nar- uh, into the narration that he does, but he's also got a notebook. So he's writing, and this is actually mentioned in dialogue between Withnail and Uncle Monty at one point. And he kind of demurs that he's got any ambitions with this writing. He's never been published. He wouldn't even call what he writes poems, just thoughts. But I thought that that element was very fourish of just like, I'm trained as an actor. I wasn't trained to have anything to say. And yet things occur to me just because I'm feeling this or just this experience is interesting and wanting to put that into words. And he generally does it in a really interesting way. There's a line that he has earlier in the movie when he's sitting in a bathtub saying like speed is taking a dozen transatlantic flights one after the other. You gain an hour, you lose an hour, but eventually you have to get off the plane. He says it much better than I did just now, but that's the gist of it. It's like, He's got some verbal flair. Fours don't have a monopoly on that. But I just thought the the pointed inclusion of that in the movie was very fourish from a character who I don't think was a four. Right, right. TJ and Gracia? Yeah, I agree. Uh, the opening shot of him smoking the cigarette in the dark just looking very morose and I thought, I don't know what this movie's about, but it's going to be about four stuff. But then, yeah, as, as, as the movie went on, yeah, I can definitely see more of the six-ish elements of it. And again, that speaks to the point that, you know, not only fours are creative, right? Um, and people are complicated and then we all have lots of sides to ourselves. But over time, we start to see these patterns, okay? I don't think there was anything but transmitting four in the Withnail character. I mean, just everything about him from the moment you meet him. It just exudes this. Yeah. I, I'm going to say the um, the depths and uh, you know un- of the unhealthy side of a four. He was clearly not a healthy character, um, and yet I could start to see why uh, why Marwood would stick with him. Right? Would be maintain friends. You know, maintain being friends with him because he's one of those guys. You start to think after a while, why am I even bothering? being around this person but there was a certain charm to him i found at some points a certain sensitivity that was kind of appealing uh, did you guys see any of that or am i just projecting something onto the character that wasn't there oh absolutely like he is a good actor he's also just really funny in his caustic way and the movie was based on bruce robinson's friendship with a drama school classmate named Viv, which in England, Vivian is also a man's name. And I imagine that, um, and TJ and Grassi to address your point of like, what, why was this movie even made? What's it trying to say? I think where it comes from is just the experience that Bruce Robinson had of treasuring the time he had with this fantastically interesting, problematic person. Somebody who is entertaining, who is dramatic, who is unsuccessful, who is aristocratic, who was bitter and cynical and hilarious and drunk and, you know, many other descriptors as well and absolutely memorable. I will say as, as, as far as a movie is concerned, so I, I, as one gets older, 
one struggles a bit more, or at least I do, with these kinds of movies, right? Uh, this is a movie I would have loved at 25. I would have just, you know, probably watched multiple times and been quoting it and so forth. Um, as I get older, I have uh, a, a more difficult time with some of what I see as preciousness uh, and this, you know, uh, deep embrace of, you know, type from anybody, uh, particularly about force. For example, I adore Patty Smith, but I can't read her books because it's just like, oh my gosh, can you be any more of a stereotype about these things, right? So um, it's like a, the the reaction some people have to reading Hemingway. You know? So, uh, uh, but I would have loved to have read this at the time when I was reading things like you know Bukowski and uh, the Beats and you know all those folks. I I probably would have gotten a lot out of it, but I did enjoy the movie. Tough for me to get into in the beginning. Like I said, I almost bailed on it, but I'm glad I stuck in. And upon my second watching, started to have quite a bit of sympathy uh, for the characters. I'll also say, something we haven't touched on yet, the uh, other characters uh, in the movie, other than Uncle Monty and the guy with the eel in his pants, uh, was the drug dealer, who I just thought was hilarious. I, uh, just, uh, I just thought he was so funny, and his deadpan delivery was just so perfect and and intelligent too i mean the, the guy was clearly quite intelligent uh, uh even though he was a, a burned out drug dealer the script to the movie was published um in the mid 90s and i bought a copy and if anybody's interested in this movie or just in good humor writing i recommend reading it because it isn't just the functional shooting script of the camera goes here and all that bruce robinson had never directed he didn't have any sense of where the camera needs to go he really trusted his crew to help him with that kind of thing but what the script is written with is extensive prose to help set the mood as well as describe what the camera should be taking in. And it's some of the best humor writing I have ever read from anyone in terms of like coming up with just a precise phrase. So one of a number of phrases to describe the squalor of the apartment near the beginning, he says, Dostoevsky once described hell as a room with nothing more than a single chair in it. This room has several chairs. And then when we, when we meet Danny, the drug dealer later, it describes him succinctly as he's 25, except he's 60. <laughs> just these perfect phrases that he uses, just that are both biting and hilarious. I, I, I could have uh, done with a bit more presuming Ed also uh, beyond the, <laughs> the uh, chanting that he did, uh, you know, but uh, perhaps in a follow up someday. All right, great. Uh, final words, thoughts on with Nail and I before we move to our next movie. One last moment I want to highlight is when they come back and then I goes out from having met the casting director and comes back and reveals that he's not going to be cast as a spear carrier. They want him to play the lead. And with Nail says, congratulations. And he's got a smile on his face, but there are daggers coming out of his eyes. And that's one of my favorite moments of any movie ever of just capturing what it's like to be an aspiring artist capturing what it's like to be a four of just that combination of like, you are my friend and I do love you and I'm happy that you got this, but why not me and fuck you? Yeah. And I think that speaks to the envy thing that we talked about. And I, I also think that when Withnail was trying to get Marwood to stay and have one more drink before leaving, uh, was an attempt to sabotage him, right? Uh, of, you know, knowing that if, if I can get you to stay here, You'll lose this opportunity and you won't leave me. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds or our certification programs, 
Visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com slash typecast. And if you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjingracia.com. Now for something completely different, the movie Pitch Perfect. TJ Ingracia, I'm going to turn this over to you to describe Pitch Perfect for us. Pitch Perfect is the 2012 musical comedy with an ensemble cast led by Anna Kendrick. The film follows the non-traditional and non-conformist Becca as she enters Barden College and the cutthroat world of competitive college a cappella singing. Although initially disdainful of the idea, Becca eventually joins the Bellas, an all-female a cappella group and rivals of the obnoxious and all-male group, the Troublemakers. As Becca tries to fit in with the group, she clashes with group leader Aubrey and her strict rules for the group's performances. She also forms a complicated and forbidden romantic relationship with Jesse, a member of the rival group. Despite their initial reluctance, Becca's fresh ideas and vocal abilities bring new energy to the Bellas, who prepare for the national championship with hopes to redeem themselves and finally beat the Troublemakers. Hi, any interest in joining our music group? Whenever you're ready, dude. Oh, not a dude. We sing songs without any instruments. It's all from our mouths. Yikes. Sorry, I don't even sing. Oh my god! You can sing! You have to join the Bellas. I can't concentrate until you cover your junk. I'm not leaving here until you sing. Bulletproof, fire away, fire away. You have a lovely voice. Thanks. This is a list of all of the songs that we have ever performed. There's nothing from this century on here. It's not enough to be good. We need to be different. I like the way you work. I have a feeling we should kiss. I sometimes have a feeling I can do crystal mess, but then I think, mm, better not. Yeah. TJ, you said you had not seen this movie prior, TJ and Gracia. Um, uh, tell me your reaction to this movie. I liked it. I mean, it, it, it's it's a musical, but not you know a musical in the traditional sense. It's no Grease, right? Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> it's no Grease, but you know, I guess I could tolerate it. There's a technical term. Any musical where there's an, a logical reason for the characters to sing is called a dietetic musical. So uh-huh. those are usually musicals about performers. So yeah, this is a classic example of that. A successful movie, right? I think it was a seventeen million dollar budget, made one hundred and fifteen million uh, worldwide gross. So uh, that explains the sequels. Uh, I, I would agree with you. I saw this for the first time. I don't know, maybe a year ago. It might have been um, on the recommendation of T.J. Dahl or something that you said that made me uh, go to watch it. And and I, this is one of those movies that you know I was aware of, uh, but it never for a split second occurred to me to sit and watch. Um, and I found it interesting that in the, uh, I forget if it was the opening weekend or if it was the total gross or whatever it was, but 81% of the people going to see the movie were female. 
which was fascinating to me because I don't know um, how many other movies would have that same degree of uh, female representation in the audience. Um, but when I did watch it, I thought, eh, it's not so, you know, it's not bad. It's got moments. It was an enjoyable watch. And I think, you know, upon rewatching it for this, I, you know, I liked it enough. I'm, I, I don't get acapella, right? You know, I mean, a lot of it I just find really, really irritating. Although I think some of the performances in this were really good. I thought the scene where they were all together, you know, kind of having a, uh, I don't know, it was the very white bread version of the uh, rap, you know, showdown uh, from Eight Mile, um, you know, where they were competing. I thought that was pretty entertaining. And I thought the last number was pretty good too. Um, I'll come back to that because there's a couple of comments we'll make. What about this? What, what scenes, TJ and Grassi, were four-ish about this for you? Well, I mean, the first shot where we see Becca, she's got the black eyeliner and the shoulder tattoos and the leather bracelet and sort of the outfit that looks like she just threw it on, but she probably spent a lot of time developing the right look. So, she, you know, it has a very four-ish sort of feel, but different from the... Uh, with nail sort of fourish feel, maybe a modern female college age kind of take. This was like a normal person for right, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so I thought the scene when they're doing the auditions in the uh, in the theater for the different groups, and you know, there's sort of a montage of all the different people who are singing, and some who are comically bad, and some who are really good, and. Then of course uh, Rebel Wilson, who was really fun to watch in this movie, just like in, always great, uh, yeah, in Bridesmaids. Uh, but then Becca shows up at the end and to do her audition, but it just it felt very forced that she's going to do it, but she's going to do it on her time. She didn't prepare the same song that everybody else did because she's you know she says she didn't know about it, and it's not it's not a portrayal that's like overtly this is who I am and fuck you because I'm nonconformist and I'm going to, I'm better than everyone. And, you know, it's, it was a very soft, uh, she's not in your face about it, but right. she's going to sing her own song. She's going to sit on the ground. She's going to take the cup off the table and do a little cup routine. Uh, and so that just felt like a, a four-ish kind of a moment. You know, she's, she's going to put her own unique spin on, on doing this audition. And then in the, what they call the riff off, which is what you were talking about, oh, I think right. the, yeah, like the eight mile rap battle or also it had right. just sort of in the concrete area they were in. It felt like there was a little bit of a callback to the gang fights in West Side Story, oh, like right, a little bit right. of a kind of, a you know, yeah. back and forth between the gangs. So in the scene, you know, it's like a sort of a spontaneous, they pick a category, one group starts and then other groups jump in and try to riff on what the last group has done. And the Bellas are going back and forth with the troublemakers. Eventually, they're just the the Bellas are disqualified because they didn't come in with the right word that the troublemakers left off with or something like that. And Becca, she's having a lot of fun and she enjoyed the experience. And Aubrey, the group leader, is really upset because they lost. But Becca says it was awesome. It was spontaneous. We were actually listening to each other. So for her, the juice isn't in the victory, she dislikes the spontaneity of it and the creativity and the what's sort of organically coming out. And that felt like a very forish thing, that it's more about what's being created versus who gets the blue ribbon at the end. Yeah. And and I think the final song was, you know, kind of a, a 
the final expression of that, right? The ultimate expression of that, of mishmashing things together in a unique way. So, which, which I thought was really great. The very setup of the whole thing that it's about acapella. Like this is a movie that I didn't see when it first came out. I saw it with a friend when I was on a theater tour and it was, there was a sing-along screening of it being done at the Alamo Draft House in Austin, where we were at the time on this tour. And it's a movie theater that I love. And, you know, I was developed enough if I can pat myself on the back for this as a forward to actually be interested in something other people are interested in. So this movie that I'd had no interest in, I thought, ah, let's just go, let's see. And I found it just to be a load of fun. But I would imagine this is a, a movie that not only that a lot of fours have never seen, that they would disdain without having seen it just because it's about acapella singing. And with that in mind, I think the setup is actually quite brilliant to make the main character a four because there's a lot of things about acapella singing that are utterly repellent to fours. You know, it's it's all covers. It's uh, posturing and playing to the crowd. It's an artistic competition in the first place, which fours tend not to like. That's gauche and silly. You know, like art is not for competition. Uh, there's goofy pun names for the groups. It's all pop songs and cheesy choreography. And then the Bellas dress like flight attendants. And their image is, you know, they're nice and they're wholesome and they're pretty, but in a kind of an asexual way. Like they're kind of as sexy as plastic dolls. Like, and the way Aubrey, who I, I see as a one in this movie, runs the Bellas is very much like, and she says this blatantly, you know, like we respect tradition. And Becca brings up the fact that none of these songs are from this century. And, and the rules that Aubrey runs the group by is that it's all songs by women from the 20th century. And we do it exactly the way we've done it before, even though the way we've done it before didn't take us as far as we would like to go, but she insists that things have to be the way they have to be. So I think Aubrey is kind of a personification of a four's relationship with type one, just like you were saying before, in terms of like, if I play by the rules, that's what it's going to mean. It's going to mean some hard ass who's rigid, who has no taste, who has no respect for my individuality, who has blatant disregard for my individuality, who tries to discourage it, who makes me sing and move and act just the same as everybody else. And when I try to break through and when I try to add some injection of verve or danger or creativity to it, that will be squashed. I will be slapped on the wrist, which is exactly what happened. She gets expelled from the group for doing exactly that. Yeah, there's um, when they first tried to get her to be in the acapella group, she says, eh, it's kind of lame, right? So you can just see this disdain. And so I think this character was a navigating for, okay? And we can see, so she arrives at the campus, even though her father is a professor there, she arrives in a taxi. And you can tell that she's got this, I don't know, I'd call it a mildly strained relationship with her father and her step monster mother. And, you know, so there's this, but it doesn't, you don't feel this intensity that you feel on a with nail, right? So for me, the navigating four tends to be a four with the temperature turned down a little bit and more geared toward melancholy than, you know, overt sadness and anger and, and, and so forth. I don't think that this character would pass the muster uh, of the four police in the Enneagram world as a four, right? But uh, for me, it very much is kind of what a navigating four looks like. When she's walking along the, you know, through the campus grounds, you can see her smirking at the other students. You can just see this sort of disdain for this whole 
stereotypical college experience, you know, for first college day experience that people are having. She's kind of above it, but also not feeling like she fits in to your earlier point, TJ, about this, you know, uh, uh, this tension between, you know, looking down on something, but also feeling insecure. So a lot of that, a lot of four stuff that we see through it. I also found it interesting that the um, song that that was the other thing even movies were too banal for her right it was like you know it was like she you know the the boy was his name jesse tried to get her to watch movies and she was like nah you know they're boring they're predictable you know blah 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 everybody knew that darth vader was you know luke skywalker's father and, and so forth but the movie that got her was the breakfast club and that the simple mind song at the end of it and i would argue that that's a navigating for movie right uh, it's clearly a navigating movie we used it as the exemplar of navigating in season one but also very fourish in its tone it's about identity who am i where do i fit in etc part of the inclusion of that movie is that after she's kind of broken up with jesse and then tried to make up with him and then he's rejected her again she watches the movie on her own and it brings her to tears and then in the finale, in the climax of the movie, as part of their act, she, in the middle of the act, sings Don't You Forget About Me and makes eye contact with Jesse in the audience, which I thought was a pretty clever way of like, how does a four say that you're attracted to somebody? Is to say, I watched the movie that you liked. Yes. I like this bit of art that means everything to you that I didn't want to have anything to do with before, but I gave it a chance and you know what? You were right. And I'm making a huge concession by doing that because I believe I'm the one who has good taste like i'm the ultimate arbiter of taste but you know what you got this one right yes yes although at the same time putting their own her own spin on the song right uh you know by because uh, she must because she must <laughs> she's a four gotta be different <laughs> i also found it interesting the um when we first see jesse he pulls up he's in the back of the car and he is uh, playing air guitar to um uh, it was Kansas, I think, right? Uh, a, a Kansas song. How would we put it? The uh, Kansas of that era was a very mainstream sort of. It's it's not the kind of rock that a four would have loved, I think, right? Uh, because it was you know kind of power ballad light in some ways, you know. So I just found that that was interesting that that was the choice and the look of disdain on her. When he was uh, doing that, uh, I think again was very foolish. Carry on, my wayward son. Was thank the song. you, thank you. Yes, <laughs> I saw Kansas in concert around that era. So <laughs> I think it was nineteen eighty one or eighty two. All right, all right, great. So a couple of things. Even they refer to her at one point uh, when they're talking about Becca. Um, the uh, what was her name? The uh, the the, the type one. The, Aubrey. Yeah, thank you. Said I'm not going to listen to some alt girl, right? So she was clearly seen as this, you know, as a four. Um, again, there were these issues of this sort of defensive rejection that we see, right? Her resistance to the charm of Jesse. You know, you, you know, good-looking guy, charming, funny. You know, you know they're going to end up together, but. She did everything she could to push him away, even though she was clearly interested in him. And it felt like this, you know, I'm not going to let you in. I'm not going to, you know, uh, make myself vulnerable to you. Um, uh, yeah, at one point he says to her, you push away anyone who could possibly care about you. Why is that? And I have certainly felt, and with several fours that I've known, this 
It's a sort of a push-pull energy. They draw you in, and then when you get too close, then, oh, nope, distance, push you away, and then draw you back in, and then push you away. Yes. All right. Great. Um, what Enneagram type would you say acapella is in general? Any thoughts? Mm. <laughs> now, I don't want to assume that it does have uh, an Enneagram type, but this is a question I had. Certainly not four-ish, right? Um, you know, I don't know that. Yeah, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Maybe seven. Seven. Ah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we're yeah. gonna we're gonna sample from all these different songs. We're gonna perform them with great showmanship. It's totally unpretentious. It's fun. It's active. Yeah. It's always happy. You know, you know what a musical tradition that actually reminded me of, which is another thing that would just be verboten for fours, is boy bands. So I remember when boy. Well, first of all, New Kids on the Block, kind of the proto boy band, were huge when I was in high school, and I loathed them. And then that they went out of style, and then. In the late 90s with the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, you know, they were huge and they were just a crystallization of, to me, everything that was wrong with pop culture. I just could not imagine any worse music. I'm not sure you were wrong about that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that is one of the beauties of four, right? A uh, healthy four. And I think this was, you know, again, certainly compared to with now, a pretty healthy four. Uh, somebody who, you know, was not wallowing in self-pity and not dark and, you know, depressed and all these things. Um, was, you know, kind of run-of-the-mill average person who just also happened to be an Enneagram 4, and you could see it uh, in her life. So, great, which is why I love this choice, okay? Again, I think both of these choices, as you said, TJ, they captured the uh, the range. Um, you know, when we talked about the eight movies last time, you know, we're not showing a whole lot of range in those two movies in the uh, in, in eightness, uh, but this, the, yeah, these two choices... Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, action oriented and so forth, right? Um, so, uh, but th this this was a really good choice of movies for uh, showing uh, four in depth and uh, from various perspectives. So, good job. All right, final thoughts on these, and uh, then I'm curious, TJ, any other four movies that you had mentioned? Uh, yeah, just one last thing I'll say is I yeah I totally agree with your assessment, TJ, that Aubrey's a a very rigid one, rigid repressed one with the stick, you know, basically find any character with a stick way up their butt. And that's probably going to be a one. <laughs> and one of the things that I liked about the dynamic is just this relationship between four and one and how the four can help the one to see that there's beauty in not doing it perfectly, that it's about the journey and not the destination. And it can still be perfect, even if it's not perfect. And then the one can also help the four to maybe take your uniqueness and your creativity and your art and actually do something with it, bring it forth into the world. Let's, you know, put some action behind it. And um, this past summer, we, I was at a farmer's market with my kids and I saw some random booth. This guy was selling t-shirts and I saw this phrase on this t-shirt and it feels like it fits perfectly here. And it said, too loose and the wheels fall off, too tight and the wheels won't roll. And it feels like ones and fours, can, if they can meet somewhere in the middle, they can really get the wheels rolling really well together. Very nice. Good. Uh, what other movies, TJ, from your view, capture fourness really well? So again, I'm not going to name specific titles except for a couple more genres. But as I was thinking about this, independent films in general. So independent films really had a flourishing and explosion, at least in popular awareness of them in the early 90s, and have been 
part of people's awareness of what movies are ever since. But they existed before that, like with Nail and I or the movies of John Cassavetes or Jim Jarmusch, that kind of thing. So independent films and independent film sensibilities are very appealing to fours. Of course, people of all nine types make and star and write in independent films, but still just that sense of like, it doesn't need to be mainstream. It can be creative. It doesn't have to follow traditional story structure or even have a story in some cases. Foreign films. Uh, Again, foreign films come from all countries. They're made by all types, but fours are often drawn to foreign films because they're different and they're artful and unfamiliar and not watched. There's a lot of people, people with really conventional tastes will refuse to watch a movie that has subtitles. And that can be a great way for fours to differentiate themselves from other people, as well as play on the fours sense of like, uh, the real life, the artful life that happens elsewhere. That happens in Italy. That happens in Japan. That happens in England or in France or Malaysia or wherever this movie that I'm loving comes from. Same with old movies. Similarly, people with conventional tastes, not interested in watching a black and white movie. Fours are. And my partner's a preserving four. And a layer that she gets from old movies that has delighted me ever since I started watching them with her is that she loves the design of old movies, the costumes and the sets, and even the way a glass of water looks in the black and white filming. Uh, And then one last genre I'll mention is biopics, particularly about artists. Fours love finding out what makes people tick, you know, what's going on inside, what makes them who they are. There are biopics about all types of people, including artists of all types, and that'll come across in the movie itself. A couple of biopics I watched as possible contenders for the movies we were going to watch were Frida, the movie about Frida Kahlo, and Pollock, about Jackson Pollock. And I loved both of these movies. And I thought the movie Frida in particular was interesting. It was directed by Julie Taymor. I don't know enough about her personally to say for sure that she's a four, but I wouldn't be surprised if she is. The movie had just all kinds of directorial flourishes where like a painting turns into real people or what looks like a painting turns out to be real people or the way it cuts from one scene to another. It's just beautifully shot, creatively written and focuses on both the inner life and creative output of a character who's very much a four somebody who suffered spectacularly and transmuted her suffering into autobiographical creative work. Great. Great. Thanks. Uh, Certainly uh, um, good insights. And so I would encourage people, if you're interested in learning about fours, to to watch both of these movies. I thought that they were good movies. Again, they're probably, um, you know, not movies that I would watch that frequently. They're not rewatchables for me, but I... I feel that my life is better for having watched them. So um, thank you for those choices, TJ. And uh, so that's it for today. Uh, We are wrapping up our uh, episode on the Enneagram Type 4. And we'll come back next time with two more movies and a different Enneagram type. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime... Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.